If you're looking for success, it's in the details. Small hinges move big doors. And now your host, Karen Allen. Hello, friend. Welcome to In the Details. I'm your host, Karen Allen, and I am very excited for today's conversation. I think it's going to be so rich in learning. So make sure you have those notepads and your pens or iPad or however you take notes. Make sure you have it all ready because today my guest is executive coach and founder of Thaxa, Dr. Carla Fowler. Carla's focus is on performance science, where the fields of strategy, productivity, and psychology intersect, which actually makes her a secret weapon for CEOs, entrepreneurs, and other senior leaders. Carla's unique approach combines the latest research from performance science with timeless best practices to help top performers get to the next level and achieve their goals. So let's get in the details with Carla. Hello, friend. How are you? Really doing great this morning, Karen. Thanks for having me. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited for us to just dive in. I some of my favorite conversations are the ones that get like really nerdy. <laughs> and so <laughs> I don't know. Too. That's my yeah. I'm like, that's my <laughs> hope. That's my hope. But, but yeah, thank you so much for being here. The first thing that comes to mind, because as I was looking at your work and the things that you're doing, is how did you even discover your passion for performance and productivity? Like, how did you land in this space? So let's let's back up a little bit and give us yeah. your background. How did you get to this work? Well, you know, the funny thing about loving performance, and of course, it's only sort of after the fact that I can look back and see it like, you know, sort of throughout the story. But the funny thing is the first time I can remember starting to think about performance was in like fifth grade. And, and, you know, wow. there are a couple of different things, but I, I like to sort of go back and say, well, why was it though? You know, what is the thing? And I think part of it may have been that in fourth and fifth grade, like you're headed into middle school and that can be a challenging time. Like you're starting, you're not quite a teen, but you're like on your way there. And I remember thinking that that was when sort of socially things started to get more challenging. Like you go to a new school, uh, it's like three new schools coming together. And I just remember that 15 minutes before class would start in the morning and we had lockers for the first time. And I, I don't know why I have this memory, but I remember those 15 minutes being brutal. And the reason was because it was this moment when you sort of had to figure out what to do with yourself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like my best friend growing up was kind of starting to hang out with other people. Mm -hmm. And I remember just kind of like chasing her around, <laughs> you know, that moment when you're like, wait, I want, I want to be a part of things. I want to belong. Absolutely. And like, I just remember this 15 minutes stretch until like, it was like, okay, thank goodness. We can finally go to class now. Mm. And, and again, like I was fortunate. I was not bullied, but I think like many people, you know, you have that insecurity and, and you're like, these social dynamics are challenging. How is it that we decide that we want to be friends with someone or we don't? How do we decide how we group as people? And I think that there was something for me that clicked where it was like, I apparently can't control that, but I want to be judged on things that I can control. And I think there was this moment where I was like, we see in, we respect people who are good at things. Mm -hmm. And so I think there was a little bit of a light switch that went off and said, well, I can figure out how to be good at things. And at the very least I control that. And so I think that is sort of 
a little bit of the start or the spark of saying, yeah, what are the little steps that I can take that are manageable to whether it was like classwork or athletics? Like I really liked playing sports and doing that. And so that was kind of, I think, the spark. And of course, we can talk about how that evolved from there. But I think that is the earliest that I remember being really interested in performance. And I think that's why, like in retrospect. <laughs> I am impressed with preteen Carla. Okay. Because <laughs> <laughs> preteen Karen was like thinking the same thing. How do I interact with folks? And I was an Air Force kid. So we were moving around quite often. And so as I entered, oh, you had grade, multiple reps right, of like arriving. Yeah. Good. Yes. I was kind of like new friends, more friends. We can do this again every three years. This sounds amazing. Wow. Except for, as you just mentioned, when you get into those hairy years of being a preteen and there are so many other dynamics at play, right? Your hormones changing, maybe friend circle changing, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And so the way that you approach that I mean, that's really profound because again, as I think about my experience, I was more so like, yes, I want to be accepted. I want, you know, people to like me. I think we all go through that even as adults we do, but my approach was like, okay, so what's their favorite gum? And I'll make sure that that's my favorite gum too. Or, you know, it's like, or they're making a great joke. I'm going to laugh super, super hard. It was like loving on them, wanting to connect more deeply, wanted to like see, let yeah. them know that mm-hmm. I saw them and I appreciate them. But for you to think of like, oh, I'm in control of this. My mind is blown right now, Carla. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I, mean, you. <laughs> I did those other things you said too. I think I just <laughs> didn't manage to do them as successfully. So. <laughs> no, I was trying all the normal, the normal things also. Mm-hmm. And, but I think there was probably another piece of me that both desperately wanted to belong and mm-hmm. also had all my own ideas about like what I thought was interesting or what was kind yeah. of exciting. And so I think because ironically, if you really are always looking about how to be good at things, there are some elements of that that actually make it harder to belong sometimes. And so, you know, it it wasn't an all-win strategy, but I think it did there was something else about it that fascinated me. And so then from there, I think my mind was just paying attention always to oh, what are other people doing like if they're good at something? And just learning sort of tools and techniques. And I mean, I didn't call it that in seventh grade, but um, (laughs) so for example, I had this amazing teacher who taught an outdoor uh, kind of alternative outdoor fitness class Mm -hmm. for seventh and eighth graders. And it was all like, she had us run or bike. Like we left the school grounds. She took us on hikes on the weekend. Uh, She made us do really stupid, challenging stuff. So I'll I'll give an example. Uh, Every spring, there was a requirement that we train for a half marathon and that we run the half marathon. And uh, she got us ready. So like, it wasn't like we just had to do it. So she built the training plan and slowly over the course of a couple of months, like worked us up. And as part of it, she had the one big epic run, which is where we ran from Seattle to Tacoma. And uh, this is, if you go over the islands, sort of the islands outside of Seattle and you take the ferries and we just broke it up, but that is a 29 mile run. And we did it as like 12 year olds. Uh, <laughs> and we, we broke it up. You run four miles, you sit down and rest, you have a snack, and then you go again. I think 
like, for example, that was some early learning around performance that was like, you can train yourself. Mm -hmm. You don't have to do something big all at once, Mm -hmm. but you do have to give yourself time. Like, I think this is my first introduction to the idea of compounding Mm -hmm. and that if you can find the right things that you do consistently that will build upon themselves, that is often the best way to get really massive results out of yourself. Yes. It was also a lot of grit training. Like yes. it was just painful. I mean, like my mm-hmm. 29 miles, like your yeah. feet hurt, your body hurts. Mm-hmm. We had parents who had to come with us. So that's actually the funny thing to reflect on is those like gritty parents who were like, okay, I'll volunteer. <laughs> I know. Yes. <laughs> my kid's going to do it, but I'll be right there. Sure. 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 Yeah. You know, so I love how at an early age, you also learn something very important about performance, which is rest, because that is something that you would, you will learn that if you were thinking about marathon and maybe you would even, uh, learn that in other, you know, sports or athletic events where it's a long period of time, because that's a different kind of training than short sprints, right. Or, Or uh, maybe not as much movement. For example, I'm thinking about volleyball. I played volleyball. We practiced for the entire three hours, right? And so, whereas if you were doing cross country, you're training in intervals. And so there's something really important about that that translates directly to all other areas of life and certainly work, which is that you cannot run the full race at full speed the entire time. Yet that is a mindset that we all start to adopt as we start to create and and curate, I would say, the kind Mm -hmm. of career we want and the work we want to do. We just imagine that we are grinding out, right? But you learned the importance of rest very early on. Are there any other lessons that you learned early on before you started to pursue this work that are still reflected in your work today? Yeah. You know, one of the things I think a lot about is I I was always kind of living in a multi-channeled way. And part of that was, I think at the same time as I was like, all right, I want to figure out how to be good at things. I was like, and I like doing a lot of things. And so- Oh, the multi-passionate person? The multi-passionate person, like loves a multi-channel life, likes having this portfolio of things. And I, again, I didn't identify this until later, but one of the interesting things about having a multi-channel life. So for me, what that looked like in high school was um, I played music. So we were a musical family. I played the French horn, like I played in the youth orchestra and some other bands, but, uh, but there was like cross country. So I ran track and cross country. There was schoolwork. And again, these trends continued into college, but uh, one of the interesting things was that I found when you were struggling in one area or it felt like one area was not going as well, that when you gave yourself multiple channels in life, there was the possibility that something would be going better in another place and that that would kind of like buoy you. So I don't know, you were probably familiar with this idea of a halo effect. And I, it, it's actually used generally, I think, for when we see someone and we know one positive thing about them, we often assume other positive things. But I often find there's sort of a parallel analogy where like if something is going well in one area of your life, it just helps you have some momentum that you can transfer into another area, even that's totally unrelated. But to say like, I can do this, 
Like, mm-hmm. yep, I'm in kind of a dry spot or like to use a sailing analogy, we are in the doldrums. The wind is not blowing right now in this area of my life. And I can have some patience for it because I see how something is going in the other area of my life. So often when I'm coaching people, I like to look for, particularly if they're in that dry patch or that um, sort of spot where it feels like they're on a plateau, assuming that we think they have a good process, like that there isn't a change we need to make in what they're doing as their process to move forwards, that I often look for orthogonal ways to say, what other area or or piece of this or channel of this could you be working on right now to get yourself a sense of some feedback or some easy wins or just to sort of help buoy yourself mm-hmm. as you do the hard work and the grit part of mm-hmm. my process is good. I just need to keep going. Yes. Right. Yes, um, absolutely. So I think that's that wonderful. Definitely something that comes to mind just again, from those early days, pre-professional training mm-hmm. uh, time. Yes. Yes. I love that so much because you made me think of how, if I am feeling like in a rut in a day, maybe not everything is working as I had hoped in my perfectly planned day and schedule. And usually when I start to anchor myself into what you're describing here, it's because something internally just, just not clicking. Mm -hmm. And so I'm really in my own way. It's not any outside things that are happening. So when I notice that internally, then I do something very interesting, which is what you're talking about. So this is like taking it from a big level down to like a very small everyday moment that hopefully someone else can relate to. (laughs) But if I start to feel like I'm in that funk, I'll write down all the different things that are in my mind, you know, because that's what, what's starting to happen is I'm feeling overwhelmed. So nothing is getting done. I don't have my focused attention. So I write down everything and then I circle one thing and I just attack it. Now, what happened, what I didn't realize I was doing until I started to learn more about the brain was we get that little dopamine hit which helps us to, and it gives you a little boost of momentum because with all of those things that are swirling around in my mind, they feel, you know, it starts to create confusion. It starts to feel like I'm never going to get anything done again, you know, going back to overwhelm, but to just find one thing and it could be the smallest task, like, you know, put the clothes away. Maybe there's (laughs) clean laundry that's been sitting on my guest bed for too long, (laughs) but it could be something that's very small or it could be something that's a larger, but usually in the midst of overwhelm, I know I can't tackle anything too big. I have to go for something smaller if I am trying to boost my momentum. So I like how you explain that because when we pull in, when we intentionally create momentum, that's what I, when we intentionally yeah. create it, it mm-hmm. serves us in a really huge way. And sometimes I think people wait for momentum to come. They wait for some sort of intrinsic motivation to just be sparked. But what you're saying here is like, you control that and you can pull it from other areas of life, which helps you then in multiple areas of life. Absolutely. And I love your technique with that because it's definitely something I've used also. And when I look, when I think about sort of performance science as a whole and like that early phase and this thing you're talking about, One of the pieces of it is like, how do we cultivate power for ourselves? And I think one of the parts of that is first and foremost, how do you rebuild your own momentum? How do you get yourself to do things when you're not feeling like it, Mm -hmm. right? And Mm -hmm. sometimes we can attack our perspective. I often say like, all right, if you're feeling stuck or you're not liking what your results are, we have at least two options. (laughs) One is 
we can try and change like how we feel or what our mindset is, like what are our thoughts doing. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is we can change how we're using time. And I like the simplicity of it because as you said, sometimes we get really bogged down, overcomplicating things, and then we don't get started. And so I think exactly this idea of how how do you, what is your understanding of yourself and how you get yourself to respark that momentum versus thinking it has to come from outside me. I don't have control over that. Mm-hmm. And, and so this is one of the principles of performance that kind of early in my life, I feel like I, I sort of trained myself in that. Like I was watching other people. I had, you know, some amazing teachers and I was like, okay, how do you like work hard, have a lot of grit and really make that spark for yourself? Mm-hmm. To like get going on something, break it down and kind of chip away at it. Mm-hmm. And so that's like when I guess you could say like, yeah, up to about the age of 20, I feel like that was a piece of performance that I was like, okay, I'm figuring this out. I'm building that habit, making that groove in my brain. Yes. Where it feels really familiar. And this I think is actually something, and, and you brought this up earlier, people who often have had some success in their lives, like know how to work hard. They know how to do that piece, like that self-motivation piece. Mm -hmm. But as you said, we can't sprint everywhere. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so one of the interesting things about performance, I think, is this next level where it's like working really hard, working all the time when that isn't actually going to get you there. Like it's an important skill to have but where either it's not sustainable or it's just, it's not going to be enough. And so that's like, so I think later then as I got into college and doing my medical and my PhD training was, I think where I started to realize like, ah, there are other tools. There's like things to layer on top of that. Because again, like if hard work and is our only uh, tool in the toolkit, like that that potentially sets us up for burnout. It's yeah. not it's not sustainable yeah. or enjoyable. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Well, so we know that, you know, burning the candle at both ends isn't going to do it. What are some other common mistakes that people make when they're trying to when they have the intention of improving their performance? <laughs> mm-hmm. yes. um, and 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 more importantly, how can those common mistakes be avoided or how can they be managed? Yes. So I have a great story about this. I always, when I talk about mistakes, I like to talk about myself (laughs) because that feels like the only fair thing to do. So (laughs) So I'm thinking about, so uh, I I went off to college. Ultimately, I was was kind of a math and science nerd and I loved it because I thought they were sort of solvable problems. And I liked the idea that life was something you could figure out. But I was very socially inclined and I did have this sense of like wanting to impact people in a positive way. So this kind of set me on the course towards medical school. And also, I I don't know if it was a little like delaying entering the real world or I'm just a glutton for punishment, but I was like, oh, they have these MD PhD programs where they pay for your school and they pay you uh, salary. It's not, it's a grad student salary, but you get a PhD and an MD. It takes about nine or 10 years, but you don't have debt and you get to learn and you emerge with two degrees. And I was like, that sounds awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you're going to pay me to go to school. And, and then I come out with these degrees, like, let's do it. Yeah. You know, that'll at least cover me till I'm 30. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. 
So I went there and I also played sports while I was doing that because uh, it was still a little bit of a student lifestyle for a good chunk of it. I had a lot of autonomy and so I could kind of organize my time. But um, anyway, so this is story comes from when I'm in my PhD and I picked a mentor who uh, was a brilliant scientist. He was always well-funded and I knew that like there was a business to science and that, you know, your success as a grad student would have something to do with like whether or not your mentor had funding. Like if they run out of funding, that is bad news for you. And I knew he had a lot to teach me. Uh, he was not the warmest or fuzziest person, uh, but very smart. And I remember that you're really going in and you don't know the answer. And your job is to sort of figure out an answer that nobody knows. Like it's not in a book somewhere. You can look at other people's work and you can read what they have done. And so you know, being the person who is good at like dotting I's and crossing T's, uh, I was like, great. I would look at what other people had done. And then I'd say, well, they didn't run this experiment. I could do that. Or they didn't run this experiment. And so I would like go into his office and I'd say, okay, like Phil, here's what I think, you know, here's what I'm thinking. And he would be like, Carla, what, like, but why? Like, why are you doing it? And it wasn't a rhetorical question. He really wanted to know what is it, what is like the, the valuable contribution you want to make to the field? What is actually really most important? Not just being busy, not just being productive and doing work, mm -hmm. but actually trying to say, what's kind of your vision or your idea for what you want to be yours and versus just running around doing a lot of work. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was really important. It was a hard question. I cannot say that I had a good answer when he asked me that. But part of the process of doing doing the PhD is to sit in that discomfort mm -hmm. and but to also sort of find that that vision and be able to actually say what would be really valuable to learn? What is most important? What do I want to do here versus just kind of like looking for low-hanging fruit, being very busy and saying, what are all the things I could do mm. and doing that instead? Mm -hmm. And and so in some ways he was saying, you, you aren't going to do every experiment, but what matters is have you picked like the right set of experiments to really carve off something mm -hmm. and make a name for yourself? Mm -hmm. And so I think this, this was both a hard lesson and I think a really important next layer that I think about with clients when we're talking about performance, and that is the idea basically that it's not just about working really hard and getting a lot done. Mm -hmm. It's related to strategy, which is to say, what are actually the most impactful things you could do mm -hmm. to get where you want to go? And by the way, where is it you want to go? <laughs> like answer that first. And I think often to get that done, we actually have to be willing to not do a lot of stuff because actually to do something successfully, we need to resource it with enough of our time, with enough of our bandwidth and sometimes money. And so I, I thought it was a really important lesson to say, hey, most of life is like this. Like if you are running a business, like you don't get to invest in all initiatives. Like you have limited time and it is important to be brutally focused on where do you want to go and what is actually going to be the most important drivers or priorities that get you there. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean you can't do something else later, but it is worth kind of forcing yourself to be selective. And it feels a little painful, which is why mm -hmm. I call it brutal focus because it's a <laughs> level of focus beyond 
what we would do naturally if we were just looking around socially and saying, well, what are other people doing? Okay, I'll do that. Mm-hmm. So this this was another lesson that now when I coach people, we really start by trying to get that clarity about what is it you really want to have happen or the results you really want to produce and what actually are the most important priorities or the most potent actions you could take to help increase the probability that you get there. Absolutely. I love that because that is definitely a common mistake for me that I stumbled on time and time again is putting thinking that I had to do all the things and then putting my energy in so many different places that Mm -hmm. maybe none of them were impactful. (laughs) Yeah. You really, when you really look at it. And, and that's something, whether you are a, a business owner or a leader in an organization, you know, this is something that I think any kind of high achiever may find themselves up against. And, you know, mm-hmm. at, at that point, I love how you talked about the discomfort that comes with building that level of self-awareness. Really? Totally. I mean, to get, if we had a whole discussion around awareness, which I think we definitely could, <laughs> the, it would, I think a lot of it would be focused on how uncomfortable it is to become more aware of yourself. But then, mm-hmm. but then as you do start to create that new level of awareness, it, it does help you to be more intentional on the things that you are doing and the things that you're not doing. And I believe for me, one of the most joyful experiences of that discomfort. I know that sounds like an oxymoron, but it's true. No, it, it doesn't. So. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was definitely when I looked at the things that I didn't need to do because that release brought a tremendous amount of peace. Mm-hmm. It brought so much clarity and it really started to create more space within. Like I felt like I, I and it still happens today. I, I can yeah. see when I'm holding on to something that I need to let yeah. go of. And then as soon as I finally, and there's always a little bit of discomfort when I have to let go. And so as soon as I do that, it's like this rush, this, this like wave of freedom and clarity and space. And that makes it all worth it. That makes the whole, all of the discomfort actually worth it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, this idea of discomfort. So this, I mean, this is sort of, if there was a third major principle about performance that I think about, you said, you said something about like actually kind of finding the joy in it or, and here's the thing. I think we always have uncertainty in life. And more importantly, a lot of the really good stuff, like if you look at things you feel the most proud of or some of the best things that may have happened to you, often if we look back two months before that or even a couple of years before that, we can say, ah, there was a moment of great uncertainty, like where I didn't know where it was headed. I didn't know that was going to be the great outcome that happened. And so often where the uncertainty is, is also where the good stuff is. Like the business opportunity that is a risk, but also part of the reason it's uncertain is because no one else has done it. And if you can do it successfully, then you will be in a great position. So I talk about relishing, like learning to relish uncertainty or practicing. Mm -hmm. It's probably the great word because again, our brains were built to like control, to like certainty, mm-hmm. like because of course that served us evolutionarily. And it's safe. Yes, you're right. safe. Yeah, it <laughs> kept us safe. Mm-hmm. And so our brains were built to try and almost like narrow our worlds so we would be more in control. Mm-hmm. And that is a good thing in some ways. 
but um, we actually have to actively sort of fight against it. I think if we want vibrant kind of engaging work lives and, and outside of work lives, Mm -hmm. and it means we have to engage with some uncertainty. And so I like this idea of seeing how can we practice like having a different mindset towards uncertainty. Mm -hmm. And I'll say probably my initial moments of doing a PhD were definitely, that was probably the first phase in which I felt a lot of uncertainty because in med school, there's a lot of work, but like all the answers are in the book. Like Mm -hmm. literally they are there. So as long as you are willing to put in the time and take the test, it it didn't feel uncertain. It was just work, but the work was certain. Mm -hmm. Uh, Trying to figure out the answer when nobody knows the answer. And and I think this is very parallel, by the way, to entrepreneurship, because more or less as an entrepreneur, you're sort of running the scientific method. Like you are saying, I have a hypothesis about what the market wants, and uh, I'm going to spend some resources Mm -hmm. to test that idea. And ideally, you can do kind of an MVP sort of situation where you don't invest too much before you get some customer feedback. But it's it's very parallel. And so I would say my biggest moment of really having to like be my own guinea pig on that particular performance principle was kind of the moment of, so I I had finished my MD PhD program. I went off to a general surgery residency at Stanford and it was my top choice. Like I matched there. I was very excited. The future was bright and I got there and it was kind of this moment of like, oh, this is really different than being in school, mm. uh, just from the time commitment. So I think it was the first time I really understood that I had sort of outsmarted like the training part of things because I was really good at calendar management. Mm-hmm. And, and in some ways, being able to focus and say, here's how much this part really needs so then I can go play ultimate Frisbee for the yes. weekend. Like, you know. <laughs> uh, my multi-channel life. Yeah. And when I got in to the residency training program, it was really like, no, like you'll be at the hospital 16 hours a day mm-hmm. and you have eight hours left over to like see your fi- fiance, exercise mm-hmm. and sleep. Mm-hmm. And that is not a lot of time. Mm-hmm. And so that was sort of the first time I was like, oh, okay. Everything was totally working and I was enjoying it up until this point, but I'm not really sure that this is going to fit anymore. Mm-hmm. And so the punchline is that by about like two thirds of the way through the year, like I had had enough clarity to say like, this is not the right choice. I'm I'm not exactly sure where I'm going next, but it's not this. And so I can't sort of sink any more energy or cost into this pathway. Like that's not a good use of that. And so I let them know they filled my spot and I finished the year, but they had someone waiting. And then, uh, I left, caught up on some sleep and was at that moment of like maximal uncertainty in a particularly public way in the sense of like when you leave a residency program or you like sort of have left medicine, it's um, people are really, it's just not typical. And, and, and that's hard to not have a clean answer, but I had sort of realized that as I had been going through medicine and doing the PhD, that I'd sort of been looking for a home. And in some ways I had not found my academic home. Like Mm. the psychiatrists were like, 
Carla, you should come be a psychiatrist. Like you're very good at this. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, but it's not kind of, doesn't feel sort of high performance. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. I was like, doesn't seem cool. Uh, the surgeons seem really cool and it's very kind of high performance, like, you know, high stakes, but actually I really liked working with people, having time to talk with people and surgery is not like, just because of the pace of the work, it's not actually the best place to maximize that part of what I'm interested in either. And then of course I was realizing there had been this thread, which is how I had gotten to all these places in the first place, which is like, I love high performance. and so. Ultimately, I decided I would need to put all those things together and I wanted to do it in a less regulated way in the sense of like medicine, uh, you need to be sort of board certified to go practice a particular specialty. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I think I want to have a practice. I think it's behavioral. It's going to be all about high performance, but I think I need more space to sort of inform my own methods, build my own methods that won't be medical in nature but that I think would really help people apply all the great ideas that are out there. And so that was kind of what led me into coaching and saying like coaching and training and leadership development, this, this is the field I should be in. And there is room for me to design my own thing. So that was the beginning of what you could say is like a PhD project uh, (laughs) of saying, but now it's a business and now it's a methodology and I need to design it. I need to test it Mm -hmm. and, and I need to focus Mm -hmm. and I can't do everything all at once. And so Mm -hmm. that was a really interesting period of years. And that was 10 years ago when I opened my practice. And, um, as, as you had said, it's an executive coaching practice and I use performance science to work with leaders and other folks who are setting ambitious goals to help them really use that science in ways, again, that go beyond just like work harder, because Mm -hmm. I I think most of the people I work with, like they have the work hard part down. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, long right, before right. they met the me. problem. <laughs> yes, <laughs> <laughs> and now you are creating and you're finding these different, unique, impactful ways that people are able, whether whether it's through methodology or even basic principles. I was reading your work, and you have three core basic principles that you've kind of carved out and you teach people. And so yeah. I, I, I think. You, I, what was it? Your professor who said, "Hey, what is the?" Yeah, my uh, my PhD advisor. PhD advisor. Was, I was like, yes. that wasn't professor advisor, right? Who said, yeah. "Okay, but where are you in this?" You know, where and now yes. this is literally the thing that he was saying you should do. It's like a direct manifestation of that aha moment when you realized, oh, the work that I pursue, the work that you know I hoped that's going to make an impact in this world, it needs to be something that I that it is impactful, that it's not just redundant. And you're literally doing that, even though it's come out through a different pathway, (laughs) it it still is. And I would really love it. If you don't mind sharing with the audience, what are those top three principles in performance science? And very specifically, is there one that you think that if you would to leave our listeners with, Hey, focus on this one, as you leave this conversation, love Mm -hmm. to hear all three, but which one would you say, Hey, this is what you need to do with this one starting off. Oh, this is such a great question. And and what's wonderful is we've already like begun to sort of touch and introduce some of them. So like the first one is, I think, relates back to the idea of strategy, picking what are the right things to do um, that are going to give you the most impact. And that is brutal focus. Mm-hmm. And I think that we have such a noisy world 
and we are very socially influenced. We look around and like whatever everyone else is doing, we can often feel like we're going to, we need to do it. And again, like our lists of things that to do or that we should do or that we should want just get super piled up. And so as a coach, often the place that I start with people is um, when we start working together, we do this five-hour onboarding session, which sounds epically long, but we to- it actually- um, I'm guessing because- that you break it down like a 29-mile yeah, run. <laughs> yeah, that is such a good guess. We, we do. And it turns out it's way easier to do some of this thinking with a thought partner in a foil than sitting in a room with a notebook by yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, like it's very easy to be like, I'm going to go listen to a podcast. I'm going to go do the dishes. I'm going to do anything to avoid thinking about something that's hard. So we start with that. And really I use it to help people get to clarity, this idea of what is it you want? And if you want a lot of different things, can we actually focus that and say, yeah, but what is really most important that you want? And then also, okay, given what it is you want to have happen, what is really most important to get you there? What are those potent drivers? Mm-hmm. Not all the nice to haves, not the shoulds, not what you see everyone else doing. And, and I can give an example of this. Like mm-hmm. when I started my practice, I had that same question, right? Nobody knew me in the field of coaching. Not only that, but I wanted to design my method because I wanted to put kind of my scientific brain to work. And so I didn't go to a coaching program. I had gotten a lot of training in medicine, kind of dialoguing with people about high stakes decisions, as well as like motivational interviewing. And so I felt like I actually had a good amount of emotional intelligence and skill in that area already. Mm -hmm. And so Uh, But nobody knew me and I wasn't even getting the benefit of like that network. (laughs) So I had to make decisions about, all right, well, what's going to be most important? And I had people like, you need a blog. You need to get on social media. You need to do this. You need to do that. And Mm -hmm. it was hard to not sort of do those things. And I definitely had plenty of moments of like, oh, maybe I should. Like everyone else has a blog Mm -hmm. or maybe I should start a podcast. But what I ended up doing uh, was... I said, I really need to focus on becoming the coach I want to be. So like practicing the art of the craft and I need to do the thing that is actually going to be most important for building the business, which more or less was like network my butt off and really connect with people. And when I say network, what I mean is build relationships, kind of reestablish myself as a person who people know and know me for this Mm -hmm. and build kind of that trust within the community. Mm-hmm. And which means I need to send a lot of emails and reach out. I had so many coffees. I was so caffeinated. <laughs> That's a great way to think about this period of time. Yeah. And again, they weren't, this wasn't, it was a way to practice pitching and kind of relationship based sales in the sense of I was really building relationships with people. And if it seemed like they might need a coach, yes, there was a moment when we could talk about that. But I really, literally those first few years, you could boil down to continuing to think about the method, test the method. And also like, just, I just sold, I just Mm -hmm. worked on building a network and selling nothing else. Mm -hmm. And it was really focused and it was hard because of course, uh, that's a, something you have to compound over time. It's not something you can really sprint on and get results like this, Mm -hmm. but it was a great exercise in what really matters here don't get distracted and just put 
put your energy towards those things. Mm -hmm. So that I think is like brutal focus is always where we start because I've found that even though I have like, there are other principles, if we can get clarity, people start to feel differently immediately. Um, It's what you described earlier in the podcast that when you can say, this is the thing I need to be focused on and I need to let go of these things, Mm -hmm. you have more, almost like instant energy. Instant. Um, Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I think the other thing about brutal focus is that when we have that mental clarity, it has a sneaky benefit into a lot of other areas we might not think it's related to. So for example, sometimes people come in and they're like, I really want to work on confidence or public speaking or, you know, leading my team. And what's interesting is I've like had leaders where we went through the exercise of really building that framework, that brutal focus framework Mm -hmm. of where is it you're headed? What's most important? What are those priorities? Mm -hmm. And they went back and shared that with their team and came back in and were like, Carla, something amazing has happened. Like everyone got so motivated. Um, And I didn't talk to the team at all. This was all, this was all this nonprofit leader. And And what he said was like, they were all like looking at the framework and they're like, that's my priority. Like that is where I contribute. Now I see how I fit into the whole picture. And so his mental clarity turned into clarity of communication Mm. and also into a total team motivation exercise. This was like a, I think it was like a normal staff meeting. This was not like a retreat with a bunch of team (laughs) building. It turned a really mundane moment into something very powerful for a group of people he was leading. Mm -hmm. And so also like, just our sense of confidence in ourselves when we know what we're focused on. Mm -hmm. So again, brutal focus, this idea of distilling what's most important or finding the most potent way to go after something for me, I think is the number one place to start Mm -hmm. because it's, it's often not the obvious place to start, but I think it just punches above its weight. Hmm. I love that. I love that. Okay. Well, we're going to leave the listeners with that cliffhanger. They received one of the three priority. Don't, don't say the other principles. They need to connect with you. They need to hop over to the website. They need to learn more I about love your it. work because honestly, I feel like that is a full plate that people can start to dig into. <laughs> it's, honestly, it is. If you did nothing else, it's so valuable. So It is so valuable. So valuable. Brutal focus. That is the homework for our listeners to start thinking about where can you make the most impact? Where can you have, you know, that distilled vision? We need that in order to be intentional with our time. And also when we are more intentional with our time and our energy, we actually feel more productive as opposed to if we did a whole bunch of things that we had zero direction for, we would end that day feeling like we got nothing done. So I, I love this. Thank you so so much for this gift. And also, I just want to say you are doing a lot of work in this area of, you know, performance science, which we could have spent an hour talking about what that work looks like, how it looks for high performers, but the way that you also shared how you found this clarity through your own story, your own experiences, I know is going to bring It's going to bring so much inspiration to our listeners because you have actually lived the work that you are now providing as a gift and service to Mm -hmm. the world. And, and sometimes we need to hear that like that is enough and that is okay. And we don't have to do it other people's way. We can trust ourselves. We can get brutally focused to figure out what that thing is. (laughs) And so not only is your work impactful, but you know, the way that you've journeyed through that and the way that it's impacted your life, 
I know is going to inspire so many people. So Carla, thank you so much. Thank you for this time today. Oh, Karen, you're so welcome. And thank you for that acknowledgement. Like it's, um, it's, it's wonderful to be able to share it. And I just couldn't agree more that, uh, yeah, we get where we're going in really interesting ways. And there is so much valuable, uh, learning that takes place along the way. And we build so many capabilities that we then have to use in new and interesting ways. So, yes. Well, wonderful. Well, we will have all of your information in the show notes. If you would like to learn more about Dr. Carla Fowler and her approach to performance science, make sure you check her out, connect and learn more so that you can also take your life and your career to the next level. Carla, thank you. This has been In the Details. If you like the show, tell a friend. For more shows like this, go to success.com slash podcast. 